Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Welcome to the Gravity Leadership Podcast. Gravity Leadership is a growing network of people who believe the center of the Christian life is the love of God revealed in Jesus Christ, and that learning to take love seriously is vital for how we practice discipleship, mission, and leadership. The Gravity Leadership Podcast explores, in practical ways, how to root our lives and our leadership in this love that holds all of us and everything together. Welcome to the Gravity Leadership Podcast. I'm Cece. Cece, it's great to see you today. How are you? Good. Good. Cece is uh, is um, sitting in for Matt, uh, who's normally a host of this podcast. Uh, Cece is Matt's daughter. Um, Cece, uh, just, is there anything going on today that you want to just uh, tell the listeners about? Well, right now I'm on a Zoom call and I'm supposed to be doing work, but I'm oh, this. Well, <laughs> just skipping to be doing, school to do a yeah, podcast. Skipping I love school it. to do a podcast. Yeah, this is really fun. So um, that's great. You're supposed to be doing some schoolwork. We're recording this. Uh, school's about almost done, isn't it? Right? Yeah. Yeah. So it's kind of no big deal. It's like no a more learning homework. day. It's an e learning day, right? Yeah. At your school. Yeah. All right. Well, Cece, it's great to have you with us. Do you want to say anything else to the listeners before we get started? Thank you. All right. Sounds good. <laughs> uh, I am here with Christy as well. Hi, Christy. Hey, Ben. Yeah. And, and, and uh, Matt's jumping on. And now and now Matt's here as well. So I, I'm getting control of my family. Mm-hmm. And my household mm-hmm. is that, my household does what it wants. Yeah. Well, that uh, was fun. Yeah. She she wanted to be on the podcast. She just was joined mm-hmm. this morning and so Fantastic. I love it. She she did it. She did she it. Did it. Well, good. Well, hey guys, we're um, we're this is the final episode uh, of our uh, critical race theory series. Um, right. Nathan has introduced us to critical race theory, uh, what it is, what what it's all about, uh, what it does, how it works, the history of it, um, all that kind of stuff. And then um, for the last two episodes, that was the first episode. The last two episodes, then parts two and three, he he walked us through U.S. history. It was a history class, basically. Yeah. It was a master class. Yeah. And using all these original sources sort of showed us how critical race theory helps us get in touch with um, the ideology within which the United States was formed and the, the ways that uh, racism and white supremacy was baked into the laws and the institutions of this land. So, um, But now we get to do like the, the jump in and so what? part of that's it, right that's which is right. like my favorite part i mean i love learning it all and it's really good but mm-hmm. the the practical side of me is like okay how do i what do i do from with all of yeah. this information yeah. So. yeah yeah so this this podcast will answer the question like why would a christian leadership podcast do a series on critical race theory why does yeah. this matter for the church you know what what um yeah so this is a so what episode it's a good one. I'm looking yes. forward to it. Yeah. Yes. And the, the I'll just say that our feedback, uh, interaction on these podcasts, messages you've sent us or posted mm-hmm. online, uh, 
overwhelmingly people are super appreciative and thankful and learning a lot. Mm -hmm. And so, Mm -hmm. um, you know, Ben and Christy, I've been thinking about one of the reasons we're doing this is because uh, CRT or critical race theory has become um, such a uh, like popular moniker that gets imported with all kinds of meaning and significance. And so I'm wondering if we don't create maybe something, maybe taking these podcasts and creating a a resource for the church and for leaders and for churches to maybe Mm. do like a 101 kind of what's going on here? Why is, what's at stake in this conversation? Why so much heat? Um, And I think this podcast series can be a part of that. So I'm, Hmm. I'm, uh, I'm cogitating on that. Yeah, it would be good. I mean, this is part of our regular um, podcast feed, uh, obviously, and but that I think it would be good. You know, podcast feed, podcast episodes get lost in the stream, you know, <laughs> of podcast right. episodes, and so um, it w- it might be good for this. Uh, I I think that would be a great idea, actually. Uh, Nathan has done so much good work for us mm-hmm. yes. that I think uh, it does deserve to have its kind of uh, ability to be found on the internet, you know, as a masterclass of sorts. So absolutely. We'll um we'll let you know about that. Uh speaking of, if you are new to our podcast, I do want to say, because we are we are getting a lot of um kind of new listeners uh specifically in regarding this series. Um if you're new to our podcast, I would encourage you to subscribe to our podcast uh with in whatever um uh, whatever uh, podcast player you use or podcast service you use, uh, so that you get new episodes. Not all of our episodes are on critical race theory, obviously. This isn't a history podcast no. or a critical race theory podcast, but yeah. uh, we do talk a lot. Um, we 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 talk a lot about um, yeah patriarchy, uh, white supremacy. Uh, we talk about racism and sexism and uh, all of those kinds of things um, because I think those are some of the uh, top line. Yes. Uh, yeah. Issues for Christian leaders today—they're they're not yeah. secondary issues. You have mm-hmm. to know how to think about these things, how to deal with these things, to be a uh, relevant and faithful Christian leader in these days. I think yep. so. So uh, I'd encourage you to, um, yeah, subscribe, and also like if you want to join our community, we've got a lot more other, uh, we've got a lot of other kind of resources that I think uh, would be really helpful for you. If you go to gravityleadership.com/slash/join. Um, you can join our community. We've got a list of curated uh, links that go out on an email mm. on Fridays every week. Um, links for leaders um, who are interested in thinking deeply uh, about these things and practicing um, faithful Christian leadership in these times. So sign up, join us, yeah. join our community. Yeah, Be part of what's going on. We'd love to have you. All right, guys, anything else to say before we dive in here? I think you covered uh, it. My... Uh-huh. Son has a mullet. Oh, oh this happened. Okay. Oh, it happened, friends. Yeah. Yeah. I know our listeners don't really need to hear that, but I need the support. So. Yeah. so in addition to subscribing and joining our online community, oh please goodness. say a prayer for Christy oh and her son um, with this new situation uh, with mullets. So. Now, your son your son is uh, 13? Not nine. It's oh, Langham. That's on. It's Langham. Yeah, Langham Nine got it. Nine-year-old. He's the yeah. coolest fourth grader at the school. Oh yeah. And uh, I think I'm the coolest parent because other parents are like, I would, I wouldn't let my I kid would never do, do that. that. Yeah. yeah so, no. um, but anyway, no, it's not really a I have, thing. I just was thinking about that when you said that. It is interesting how these things kind of come around again. Like my, 
you know, skinny jeans were a thing for a while. And like my kids are now wearing baggy clothes like oh, I wore yeah. in high school. I yes. wore baggy clothes in high school. Just save like your clothes. Rock. 25 years yeah. later, it's going to come Vintage. back. Vintage. Yes. Vintage clothing. <laughs> they would have loved uh, all my baggy clothes. So. Oh, man. All right. Well, let's right, jump well, in. I want to hear it. All right, all right. That sounds good. All right. Here we go, guys. Nathan, welcome back to the Gravity Leadership Podcast. Thank you. It's a joy to be with you all again. Yes, Dr. Nathan Luis Cartagena joins us again. In part one of our conversation, he laid out a bit about what critical race theory is, just some broad contours. Part two and three was a history of how racism and whiteness was legislated and uh, ensconced in the laws and decisions of the courts in our country. Now in part four, we're going to chat about uh, why why is there such a kerfuffle about critical race theory and and what is it what is it for? what what are the maybe uh, dangers we need to look out for and what uh, is some of the helpful work it could be doing? Yeah, Nathan. Yep, sounds good. <laughs> Great. Um, so here's a question that comes up uh, often. Um, I hear that critical race theory has its originations in Marxism. And everybody knows that Marxism is godless and anti-American, right? And so... Uh, we shouldn't use critical race theory because of its godless anti-American origins. This is one of the criticisms we hear. Um, how, how does that criticism strike you? How would you respond to that? It's a great question. Uh, so here we're going to, I want to remind the audience what I take to be CRT proper, and then I'll, and I'll respond just perfect, to make sure everybody's perfect. on the same page. So first, remember that for me, I'm working with the definition that critical race theory proper, not its derivative sense and not its extended cultural war sense, is a legal movement aimed at understanding, resisting, and remediating how U.S. law and legal institutions such as law schools have fostered and perpetuated racism and white supremacy. Um, I think one of the reasons it's so important to give a definition of what we mean by CRT is it would be similarly important to give a definition of what we mean by Marxism. So, for example, there's not one school of Marxism. Marx's views change pretty dramatically through the course of his life. And then what it means for somebody like Lenin, for example, or Stalin to take up Marxism is, is quite different. And then what people often are going to be thinking about is a connection from Marx slash Marxism to what's known as critical theory, which is uh, connected to what, what's known as the Frankfurt School. So you have a number of uh, German Jews after World War II trying to make sense of the racial quagmire hmm. that was the Nazi party. And um, they are, on the one hand, drawing ideas from Marx, on the other hand, challenging and, and rejecting certain Marx, uh, Marx ideas. So, and, and that makes plenty of sense because Marx was not really doing much to center um, any reflections on, on, on race. And so one of the questions that, that folks in the Frankfurt School, for example, are going to have is like, how do we make sense of some of the class dynamics, but also some of the race dynamics, et cetera. Now, I note that because for the CRT connection, 
It is true that a lot of CRT scholars are going to have been trained in what's known as critical legal studies. And this is a branch of legal studies that draws on ideas from Marx, from the Frankfurt School, but that challenges both, challenges both. And, and often what you find uh, the CLS folks saying is Marx's view of law is it's it's too it's he has what's known as instrumentalist view this isn't going to work it doesn't account for the situatedness of law it's too reductive it's too essentialist and so they they say a number of things like that and so even the cls folks uh the critical legal studies folks they're they're distancing themselves from marx they're saying no no we don't endorse what they'll call vulgar marxism so they don't they don't endorse marx proper you might say classic marxism but one of the things that happens, I believe we discussed this briefly in the first podcast, is critical race theorists like Kimberly Crenshaw, Mary Matsuda, Charles Lawrence III, Richard Delgado, and Robert A. Williams uh, Jr. Of, of the Lumbee tribe, they, though they, they're familiar with CLS, they're saying, well, you all aren't accounting for race. And in fact, you are not only failing to account for race, but your vision of rights because of how you're thinking through things from a Marxist lens, you're like, oh, this is really only going, rights are only going to work to perpetuate uh, mass forms of delusion and continued forms of oppression, et cetera. But, but all these people are saying, well, actually, in the histories of racialized minority communities, rights rhetoric is really important. And it, one of the reasons it's so important is it helps us to resist these tremendous pressures that are coming from white supremacy throughout the histories that we, that we discussed in parts two and parts three. So what you're finding with people like Crenshaw, and and say Williams is a very intricate dance with CLS with some aspects of the Frankfurt School where they'd say kind of like what you see medievals do with Aristotle okay these things we definitely endorse or if you want to go further back the medievals think about the early church with the way that they interact with the Stoics and how important Stoic philosophy ends up being for the construction of the creeds it's not like it's just a wholesale exception accepting of stoicism but no okay hold on let's think through these metaphysical categories how do they apply to what we see in the scriptures etc it's a similar sort of thing going on with 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 critical race theorists but there's a constant resistance of what you might think of as a as a holistic uh marxist conception and i think for some some in your audience uh it's important to, to note that for them to hear the words for example oppression or oppressed or the oppressor is to them just to be talking in a Marxist register. And, and they don't realize that these are actually also biblical categories, for example, or that many people were talking about problems with oppression way before Marx came on the scene. And many people will, in fact, argue, as you see some of these critical race theorists do, that Marx can't account for certain modes of oppression because he only wants to, he wants to center class analysis. He doesn't really have any room for thinking about race and how modes of white supremacy come up. Now, I want to highlight that things actually get even a little bit more confusing, and there are needs for for greater levels of of nuance, because as you'll recall from part one, I stress that many CRT scholars are connected to decolonial movements. Mm -hmm. So somebody like Richard Delgado is connected in part to the Chicano-Chicano movement, which is also known as the Brown movement, which is an effort to resist the, the modes of white supremacy that have been ravaging Chicano and Chicano communities. Somebody like Robert A. Williams, he's connected to what's known as the Red Power Movement, which is an effort at thinking through decolonial realities as they relate to indigenous communities. And then somebody like Derek Bell or Kimberly Crenshaw, but certainly more Derek Bell, is, is going to be connected to the Black Power Movement and thinking about how do we decolonialize the, the modes of anti-Black racism that are suffusing white supremacy. Now, I want to stick with Bell for just a moment because 
Bell is is known for saying, I never I never studied Marx. I didn't think it was important that I study Marx. I'm instead studying people like W.E.B. Du Bois, because Bell identifies with what's known as the black radical tradition. So Bell isn't, he's not spending time with the Frankfurt School. Frankly, a lot of Bell's work, it doesn't even do much with critical legal studies because he's doing a number of his things before critical legal studies becomes more popular in places like Harvard and, and, and Wisconsin. Hmm. Uh, he is going to deal with critiques of certain, what are known as formless views of law that, that fail to account for how law is a, is a socially situated reality that will reflect, as it were, the broader society while also shaping the broader society. But, but Bell is, is, he's thinking with people like Thurgood Marshall, he's thinking with people like, like Baldwin, he's thinking with people like Du Bois. But it's important to say, okay, though he's not doing a lot to prime, in terms of like his engagement with primary Marx texts, you certainly find that somebody like Du Bois is critiquing Marx. He reads Marx carefully and says, nope, here are devastating shortcomings in Marx. Hmm. Now, that's the sort of thing that, that Bell's going to receive and, and he's going to inherit and it's going to shape how he's thinking. So he's thinking about material conditions, but in terms of reflections of somebody like Du Bois, not proper, like not, not most directly somebody like Marx. So I'm saying this because for some in the audience, they're going to hear people say, well, the moment you can find any kind of connection to Marx is the moment you can blow the whole thing up. Like that's the moment you don't need to, you don't need to pay attention to it anymore. <laughs> but I, I wanted to give this kind of example of, of the derivative connections in a way that's like holds with Bell, where he's going to say, well, I, I'm not reading Marx proper. I'm not really reading the Frankfurt School. That's different than somebody like Crenshaw or, 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 um, or Williams, in part because there has to come a point where we realize that folks like Marx and Durkheim, for example, because they're so influential in the launching of sociology, even though sociologists are consistently resisting and extending and critiquing initial insights from people like, like, like Marx and, and Durkheim, those that are going to be paying attention to broader research in social science, broader, especially sociology, but also anthropology and in history, they just are going to be dealing with people who are in complex ways accepting certain Marxist ideas and rejecting certain mm -hmm. Marxist ideas. Mm -hmm. And I really wanted to highlight that because critical race theories are interdisciplinary, or in fact, what, what Cornell West calls de-disciplinized. So mm. one of the great challenges that comes with, work, with working in CRT is you just have to know so much and you have to be reading so widely because in any given essay, it's like, well, here's all this stuff in history. Then here's mm -hmm. all this stuff in legal studies. Okay, now here's this stuff in psychology. Here's this stuff in theology. Here's this yeah. stuff in philosophy. Yeah. Here's this stuff in sociology. And, and it's like, oh my goodness. Oh, oh and now we're into decolonial literature. And they're bringing it all together because they're trying to help us understand the, the things that influence law and then the ways that laws go and govern various parts of human life. So they're thinking, of course, we're going to pay attention to a broad swath of things. So, Nathan, yes, you ahead, hit it on the head where you it's, it's complicated. There's a yes. lot that yeah. is involved in it. It's not just studying one thing, right? I feel like my no. mind's about to like blow up because I'm like, <laughs> wait a minute. Um, I need I need you to double click on something for me yes. because I'm wondering if if our listeners are a little bit like me where I'm like okay I know that critical race theory really it it seems as though it polarizes um you know the two, into people into two groups the oppressor and the oppressed right but I know it's more complicated than that and yep. so can you just double click and help us kind of give us a little bit more on that yeah this is a great question so let me let me explain how somebody like Bell would think about this and then we'll work to Crenshaw and, and you'll see why we'll go to Crenshaw. Bell, Bell's going to talk about the ways in which law 
subordinates groups. So he'll, he'll most frequently talk about subordination rather than oppressed. He'll talk about those that are subordinated and those that are doing the subordination. Like, so okay. for instance, then like the laws of uh, the U.S. that denied sovereignty rights to native persons. It. Exactly right. Yes. And so he's going to say, clearly, the law has subordinated them. And, and you think about, for example, Puerto Rico. Think about the insular cases. The, the U.S. doesn't grant citizenship to, to Puerto Rico. For a long time. And then even once it grants citizenship to Puerto Rico, you don't have all the rights to come with citizenship. Right. You, it, the only way you can have voting rights, for example, is to move from the island to the mainland. Hmm. And the, these ideas, the, the patterns of determining who was going to be able to vote and so forth were connected to white supremacist ideas that were connected to fears about assimilation, etc. So Bell could look at a case like that and see, okay, look, we have a vision of the United States as this Anglo-Saxon empire. It acquires these non-white peoples and it's doing stuff it's doing all of this work to keep them at bay while also being able to exploit the relationship so make it a tax you know a tax haven for for certain corporations for 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 certain pharmaceutical groups etc so so bell's gonna say look in terms of the legal standing they, they don't they have taxation without representation that's a clear presentation of subordination and it's a clear presentation now to switch into another category of exploitation and then yet another category oppression and it's all shot through with visions of racism and white supremacy versus the non-whites. And, and you see that you see, in fact, the courts talking about this in what are known as the insular cases, where they where they explicitly say, well, hold on, we we, we don't want to jeopardize what, what they and they and they quote Chief Justice John Marshall, the white, uh, sorry, the American empire, because we, we don't want to bring in these people too quickly now, because <laughs> that could that could really distort uh, our efforts at, at maintaining this this white Anglo empire. So Bell's going to look at that and go, okay, here's a clear-cut case of the ways in which people are being racially subordinated, exploited, and so oppressed. And then he'll look at, for example, slave codes and say, yep, same sorts of things, even though this is now happening on the mainland. Then he'll look at the complete failure of Reconstruction, and he'll quote a historian like C. Van Woodward who says, yeah, it ends up that white Southerners and white Northerners, they, they reconcile at the cost of black people. Yeah. So then you get you get Jim and Jane Crow. And so Bell looks at that and he's like, oh, yeah, second-class citizenship. You're clearly being subordinated by law. You're being exploited. You're being oppressed. And, and law is enabling all this to happen. Exactly. He would talk similarly about how women were in a subordinated place because they didn't have the vote until 1920s, et cetera. So those are the examples of the ways that Bell's thinking through how you get modes of, of subordination, modes of oppression. But because Bell thinks that way, Bell's also going to ask questions like this. What are the distinctive ways in which poor whites historically have been subordinated, have been exploited, have been oppressed? And he time and again will note that, and, and he's drawing on people like um, Morgan and Van Woodward. He's going to say, when we look at the histories or um, uh, Winthrop Jordan, he says, when we look at U.S. history, one of the things we find is the elite class, more of a kind of aristocracy. It's not quite an aristocracy, but very close to that. The, plut the plutocrats, as I like to call them. They will, they will dangle whiteness as a way of forming a cross-class solidarity. Hmm. But the whole time, they're still promoting laws and, and visions of the United States that overwhelmingly oppress and exploit poor whites. But they're saying things like, well, be careful because the real threat are these these mm -hmm. Chinese people. They're going to come mm -hmm. and take your jobs. Or mm -hmm. it's, it's these black people that are always just asking for handouts. And you're like, but what about all the bailouts that go to 
corporate groups that go what about right. all the the subsidies that go right. to, to to these massive farms that have displaced family farms etc cetera, etc cetera. bell's gonna look at them and be like oh wait these mm-hmm. people are being subordinated they're mm-hmm. being exploited etc yeah. so for bell it's more complicated than saying well it's just whites subordinating non-whites right. he's gonna say well if i'm looking at the macro structure yes i see how through laws and through habits and patterns of relating that's going to generally hold but i mm-hmm. also see that that's happening in terms of material conditions, it's going to hit even white people. And so he'll talk mm-hmm. about hierarchies within racial categories. Mm-hmm. So he'll talk mm-hmm. about how, for example, yeah, if, if you're middle class black, you won't experience some of the same forms of, 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 of racism and exploitation as if you're poor black. But it, but it, that none of that's going to keep you from being in a car, driving in a car, right. and then a police officer pulls you over because a police officer profiles yeah. you, and who knows where that's going to go. Right. You still look black when you're driving. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Right. Right. Yeah. And, and can I say one more thing? Yeah, if you go, wanna, ahead, go ahead. Yeah. So I think one of the reasons this ends up being so important is because those general ideas then get picked up by Crenshaw, who, who mm-hmm. in 89 says, OK, we're not paying enough attention to the ways in which there are forms of gendered racism mm-hmm. and the ways in which law will presume a certain gender of a person and then make it so that certain forms of exploitation, for example, just can't get recognized in a court because you'll say, okay, either you're saying that this is discrimination according to gender or it's discrimination according to race. And so there are cases that, that, that Crenshaw gives in her in her uh, her first piece, Demarcating, um, again, in 1989, where she says, well, wait, there are cases where there are black women who are saying, because we are black women, so women and black, we're experiencing unique forms of discrimination in the workplace, distinct forms of exploitation, dis- dis- distinct forms of subordination. And at the time, she highlights how these how the laws just couldn't deal with it. Like, okay, so either all women at the workplace are being subordinated because they're women, or everybody that's black is being subordinated. She's like, well, the black males aren't being subordinated in the ways that we are, yeah. and the white women aren't being subordinated in the ways that we are. We're talking about black women being subordinated. Yeah. And there was just no legal category to account for those modes of subordination. Mm-hmm. So Crenshaw ends up championing an idea about intersectionality because she's right. saying, well, look, the ways in which we can get subordinated can be very complicated. Yeah. So it could be that accent discrimination is going to come. It could oh. be that pigmentation is going to come. It could be that ability is going to come into play. It, it could be um, questions about immigration, et cetera, et cetera. So she's saying, let's, let's open up the VISTA and take in more of mm. what's going to be relevant in any particular place. And last point on this, She's going to note that this can be different from one region to the next. Oh, so, yeah. what what it would look like, for example, for somebody that's um that that's from say Tennessee, that's going to have a, a thick Southern accent, to go to Manhattan, yeah, and 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 try to like, there's just no way if you have if you have an accent from pretty much anywhere in Tennessee, you go to Manhattan, people are going to look at you and be like, oh yeah, you're you're like this upper class upper class white folks. They're going to be like, nope. No, you're clear from the South. And then racist, frankly, ideas, elitist ideas about the North being superior to the South come into play even in terms of white-on-white white white relationships. Yeah. So that's the sort of thing that Crenshaw's opening up. She's saying if we're going to love our neighbors, we're going to care for them, we have to pay this level of attention to the particular differences. This podcast is brought to you by Gravity Leadership Academy, our 10-month online training intensive for Christian leaders who want to root their life and leadership in God's love and bring lasting transformation to their culture. In Gravity Leadership Academy, you'll learn the real-life practicalities of how to notice God's presence and activity in and around you so you can participate more fully in God's life and mission and open up space for those around you to do so too. 
We've worked really hard to make this training in missional leadership practical and doable. To find out more about Gravity Leadership Academy, visit gravityleadership.com academy. So in, in essence, I hear you saying to that, to that sort of trope or that, that challenge to say, hey, the CRT divides the world into oppressor and oppressed, and that's, it's more complicated than that. When you're actually saying, no, CRT helps us see the ways that laws have divided the world into subordinated and you know, subordinator, right? Yep. So, so these, these categories exist. CRT didn't invent them. Correct. They exist. CRT helps us see them. Correct. So that, and I love what you said there at the end, uh, quoting Crenshaw, this allows us to love our neighbor better. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> because we right. can see more clearly what their experience is like. Yeah. You know? Through, exactly. Through that whole exactly. thing. So that, that's brilliant. Um, so maybe uh, another challenge that I sometimes hear, maybe just see how you would address this. Um, one of the things I've heard uh, about CRT is like, th- this is a worldview um, yeah. And so, as a worldview, it, it it is a challenge to the gospel because the gospel is also a worldview. And so, CRT uh, is incompatible with the gospel because it makes these truth claims that un- undermine or contradict uh, Christianity. And so, you know, CRT is essentially like an atheistic worldview, and it denies yeah. you know creation, redemption, and you know all of that mm-hmm. kind of thing. So, what w- what would you say to that kind of uh, challenge uh, to CRT? So, so I. I tend to historicize quite a bit, as y'all could tell. Because good, we had, I'm here we for had it. Two, no, that, two podcasts for it, so, right? It's so helpful. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so, so I'll say this. You, we got to ask questions about when did Christians start talking about worldviews? Come and then on, we gotta ask, This is a when good question. There we go. Oh, yeah. yeah. And then we got to ask questions about which segments of the church talk most about worldviews. And we got to ask, what are worldviews supposed to be doing? And, 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 and here's an important thing. They're discourses. These are yes. discourses. Mm-hmm. So... You don't find, for example, Augustine talking about worldviews. He's going to talk about philosophies, and he's going to talk about Christianity as a philosophy, and he might talk about Stoicism as a philosophy, et cetera, et cetera. But even as he's doing that, he's going to have this idea that we're not dealing with simply these holistic systems of thought. The idea of a system is a distinctively Enlightenment construction. He's going to say, okay, yeah, no, there there are these broader philosophies, which are, for him, connected to ways of life. Pierre Hadot is so good on this. Philosophy as a way of life is, is one of his most important books. So there, there are claims about reality, yes. But but even though they're connected, there are ways of, of, of separating them. So you can say, okay, yep, no, we're endorsing this, but oh, hold on, that, that, that seems off. But then there are, are broader questions about practice and how should we be living. Um, so I, I'm saying this because when I when I encountered worldview discourse, for example, at a place like Grove City College, my one of my alma maters, I found that that there was this, there was this triumphalism that was connected to worldview discourse. There was a there was a way of dis of, of of disconnecting, for example, the kind of nuanced evaluation that I would see in the medievals, whether it's somebody like uh, Augustine, Boethius, uh, Aquinas, Bonaventure, in terms of how they're engaging a wide range of views, for something instead like this, like here's a general presentation of postmodernism, Marxism whatever it's going to be. Here are these five or six ideas, and we're just going to deal with those ideas. Hmm. And we're just going to say, are they true? Are they false? Etc. But I remember thinking, where is any of the history? Like, it, it's, it's, it's all a historical vacuum. Yeah. And I was always concerned about the ways in which there, was, there were forms of intuition pumping that were going on. When I'm like, well, I, I mean, I don't know if this is an accurate presentation of these people. 
We're not really engaging primary text anymore. It's just these big umbrella terms. So one of the reasons I'm, I'm saying all this is because I think that for many in your audience, they're, they're trained into worldview discourses to see things as entire unified systems, and it's often a some a some zero game. Either it's, it's wholly connected to the gospel or it's completely opposed to the gospel. And what I want to say is that's just not the way that historically most Christians have been thinking about yeah. A whole range of truth claims and a whole range yeah. of disciplines and, and bodies of knowledge, et cetera. They're going to mm -hmm. say, okay, we're sure that you have things that are good, right, true, and beautiful in what you're believing, and we need to learn. So uh, we don't want to learn those things. They're kind of like, yeah. as we talked about before, they're, they're, that's going to be philosophical water. It's going to be good and nourishing. Yeah. Now, we, 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 want, we want to receive that, and then as we engage in distinctively Christian reflections, we're going to see it hit Christ, mm -hmm. as it were, and, and be transformed into theological wine. But now mm -hmm. we're going to do this slow and steady work of, of working through it. So uh, just uh, one example, Aristotle, for example, claims that that what you might think of as creation, it's eternal. Yeah. Aquinas completely rejects. He's like, no, no, no. Creation is ex nihilo. It comes into existence at a certain time, etc. But he can say all that and then say, okay, but Aristotle, you got some great ideas about habits, virtues, how human beings act, etc. Mm. And then they're going to be parts of Aristotle's ideas about laws, for example. And Aquinas is like, eh, no, that doesn't work. For various reasons. So he's engaging Aristotle on all sorts of particular claims, and he's doing nu uh, nuanced commentary on Aristotle. So that he knows, yep, this is what he says. Hmm. This is what he believes. Here are the reasons why, etc. Hmm. Most of the people that are talking about CRT as a worldview, then don't, they don't realize that CRTers consistently don't talk about CRT as a worldview, for example. They also say you can't just look at a handful of claims because one of the most important <laughs> common ground beliefs among CRTers is we have to engage in historical analysis. So mm -hmm. you have to ask, why would somebody be championing these views at these times? How are they situated in broader social patterns of meeting, etc.? So when I hear, okay, well, CRT is just this worldview that's opposed to the gospel, I'm already going, hold on, why have we jettisoned a whole host of historic ways of Christians engaging this? Why is it that there's so much money, frankly, and all these worldview, worldview mantras in the worldview camps and places like Colorado, et cetera, et cetera. So I, <laughs> I already become quite concerned about some of that. Hmm. But, but again, then when I get to the specifics of CRT, I find them saying, well, look, we're, we're not a monolith. We're, we're a variegated yeah. movement, and we disagree on a whole host of things. Now, yes, are there some common points? Like, we're going to stress historical analysis. Yes, we're going to stress race consciousness. Yes. Yeah. But they don't even agree on what, what racism is, for example. They have different definitions, They're, yeah. and, and some of them are, in fact, incompatible. So I would say, when we're looking at CRT, we need to ask, okay, what does any given CRT scholar say? Because as, as I stressed uh, in, in part one, CRT is this movement that has various traditions, and within those traditions, there are varying competing theories. So the <laughs> traditions compete, the theories yeah. compete. Yeah. There's a lot of diversity all mm. the way down. And I tried to highlight that even in my earlier comments about how Marxism does and doesn't relate to CRT. So how mm. you'd have to relate differently if you're reading Crenshaw than if you're reading Bell. But now I want to say one more thing, and I want to bring this home to the Christians. Uh, when I hear the gospel without any clarification, I start getting nervous. Because for some people, the gospel means four words I've heard a Southern Baptist say, Jesus in my place. Okay. What all does that even mean? Now, a whole lot of, like, if, if that's all you have, you don't know. Yeah, yeah. But, but what, what, what you're presuming in Christian circles is they're like, oh, well, something like vicarious atonement, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. 
Okay, so I want to say this. Does Jesus, it, is it the case that the Father sends the Son to die for sinners and that the Son is raised by the power of the Spirit and the Father and the Son send the Spirit to apply redemption? Yes. Two sinners. Yes. Are our sins forgiven because of the work of Christ? Oh, you better believe it. But the blood of Christ doesn't just atone for sin. Christ's work is cosmic. Come scope. on, Nathan. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Christ yeah. is redeeming the entire cosmos from the realities of the curse, from the yes. realities of the fall. Yes. And those include, for example, the deterioration of creation, the ways in which non-human animals, to use the medieval phrase, are experiencing things. So, they, as Paul says in Romans 8, all creation is groaning. But yes. even more, even even proponents of racialized chattel slavery, like James Henley Thornwell, said, "Oh, Christ. Yeah, no, no. Christ is a liberator." Christ is going to bring an end to all forms of oppression, all forms of slavery. The question for them was when. Mm. So they are, have this already not yet eschatology. Mm. Okay, any good Christian should have that, but the question always ends up being, well, how do we see the already and the not yet? So mm. somebody like Thornhill is going to say, oh yeah, Christ is Christ the greater Moses. He's the greater mm. liberator. He's going to put an end to all these forms of slavery. Just not right now. <laughs> like his his ultimate work is going to be accomplished later. So right yeah, now, no, no, yeah. no, be careful because if you engage too much of this, you're going to fall into what he, he's already calling it communism. Back at the time, he's terrified about communism, and this is back in the 1850s. Fascinating. So some of these tropes just keep on wow. coming back. Wow. So yeah. it's, I, I say this because for some, for some, they don't even see that part of the good news of the gospel is that Christ is the greater liberator than Moses. Yeah. Christ is the one who identifies with the oppressed and the exploited. Think about Matthew 23. And mm -hmm. he's also bringing an end to all modes of exploitation and oppression. Yes. All of them. Mm -hmm. So Christians sh should be celebrating that. And then one of the reasons why the kingdom, when you look at, for example, Acts 6, if you trace from Acts 1 to Acts 6, one of the things that you see is a mark of the church is this uh, the sharing and addressing of all the needs of widows and orphans in particular. Yes. Making sure that the kingdom is a place of mercy, making sure that the kingdom is, is a place where those that are being exploited, those that are being marginalized are going to be welcomed, they're going to have their needs addressed, because it's 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 a sign of the, the greater things to come. And that's always been true of the people of God. Mm -hmm. But oftentimes now, for those that see the gospel in a hyper-individualistic, it's just me and Jesus, and it's just about my sins, and how Jesus saved me from my sins, and I don't need to be engaged in social, social concerns, like that vision of the church and that mark of the church just doesn't even hold for them. So hmm. my point is not that CRTers get all this, they understand all this, they get this all right. But you should know, some of them are deeply committed Christians mm -hmm. who, because they're trying to promote justice and mercy for widows and orphans, and they're looking at the racial caste system in the United States, they're looking at this history, they're asking, why are people, for example, in the borders being treated like animals and being put up in cages and these sorts of things? Like, okay, well, what it would be to be a faithful Christian promoting justice mm -hmm. and mercy, trying to care for the least of these, yes. is going to require being race conscious, it's going to require thinking about laws, it's going to require certain forms of activism. That doesn't mean that they give up talking about Jesus as one who's died in your place, Jesus one who saves you from your sin. No, they're talking about that and because yes. they have a, a more capacious vision of the gospel. Yes, Nathan. Wow. All right. So, uh, like, Some... I think that's a good answer to that question. <laughs> um, <laughs> but I, I think there's a... <laughs> Uh, a minus. No, I'm just kidding. Um, it, was, it, was, it was amazing because it, it opens up so many categories for us. Um, and so I think this, this actually hints on, it, this hits on why this feels so threatening to certain mm. Christians, I think, right? Because mm -hmm. there is this myth that, well, like you said it, like, where do we get the idea that the gospel is a worldview? What is a worldview? Mm -hmm. How does that work? How does the discourse work? You know, that, that kind of a thing. And I think what, what CRT ends up, because of its historical perspective, what I'm learning from you right now, is that CRT 
uh, because it has this historical perspective, it, it engages with the gospel in ways that theologians have always engaged with the gospel from their situatedness, you know, from the, the philosophies and the, the, the ways that they kind of see the world. They have to engage the gospel from that place. And I think one of the things that CRT feels so threatening, uh, uh, one of the ways that CRT feels threatening to certain Christians is that it challenges the notion that there is some sort of pure kernel of the gospel, some sort of like collection of knowledge that is like unaffected by culture that we can somehow get our hands around. Um, because CRT seems to say like, no, there's, there's, that, there's no such thing as sort of uh, contextless knowledge, right? Right. So anyway, that, that mm-hmm. just struck me as maybe that's one of the reasons that this feels so threatening to people. I think so. May I add a little bit to that? Sure. So if you read somebody like Augustine, he's going to stress fallibilism. He's going to say, all of us are historically situated social creatures, linguistically bound, which means we're going to be, I'm going to use C.S. Lewis. He talks about this in his, his, his preface or, yeah, it's a preface to um, Athanasius's On the Incarnation. He says, we're all part of an age, which means we can see some things well, better than other people, and then we're going to see some things poorly. It's, it's a very Augustinian note. They're stressing we're all perspectival. We all see from a particular place, given a certain language, given a certain history, et cetera, et cetera. So for somebody like Augustine, somebody like C.S. Lewis, what does C.S. Lewis say? Therefore, we need to be reading old books to help us to better evaluate our place and time. You find similar ideas with Augustine. Okay, hold on. Let me let me see something from this perspective. And oh, wow, look, that's going to change how I appreciate things. So for Augustine, for example, he's navigating two cultures. He's navigating both being Roman in an important sense, but also being Berber from his mom's side. So the Berbers are colonized. And you see this working itself out in so many of Augustine's texts where he has this, this dualistic mode. And I, and I don't mean dualistic in a, in a nasty sense. It's like, well, I, I know what it is to be a part of these colonized people, but I also know what it is to be a member of this empire and to be a, connect as, as being Roman. So he's, he's, he's fluctuating at times. Uh, when you read him, you can see where he's, he's, he's doing more to endorse certain Roman perspectives. And there are times he's going to resist those and say, no, 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 hold on. I know what, the, what these indigenous Berbers people are, are seeing, and they're spot on. So nope, I, I can't go with you with you all here. I'm, I'm, I'm highlighting this because even somebody like Herman Bavink, <laughs> okay, so this Dutch Reformed theologian, is going to say when he reads when he reads the Mosaic Covenant, he says, "quote It's clear this was written from the perspective of the oppressed." He's going to say, "Yeah, look at the concerns for the ways in which certain people are exploited. Look at the concerns for widows and orphans. Look at how many times God's going to say." Because I took you out of slavery, mm. X, Y, and Z follow. It's like, yeah, that, that's only going to make sense if you're thinking about what it is to be part of this oppressed mm. group. So, so some of the some of the critical race theorists are going to say there is no view from nowhere. Nobody can access, as it were, this neutral perspective. What we have available to us are a whole range of perspectives on an, an event, and what we're trying to do is have the most accurate take on it. So we have to listen to these various groups. There's no, here's what they're meaning. There's no objective truth in the sense that here's this view from nowhere and all you have to do is have some happy thoughts and then poof, you get to it. They're like, no, 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 that that doesn't work. We're all socially, historically situated, linguistically limited sorts of creatures. If I may just give you one example, Mm. like even how language can limit. In Spanish, we have have two words for talking about knowing. So we can talk about saber and we can talk about conocer. So saber is, is a way of like, I know propositions, something like that. Conocer has to do with familiarity. Mm-hmm. Like, oh, I know her or him in the sense I have this kind of relationship to to that person. Mm-hmm. And in English, well, we just have 
oh yeah, I know, I know this and I know her and I know him. We don't have that, that same kind of linguistic range that enables you to see things. So oftentimes you have to get into the nuance of saying, wait, what do you mean by no? Like Lewis talks about with, with four loves, for example, mm-hmm. the difference in, in Greek. So, so this is something that, that CRTs are also going to be talking about. Like, okay, how does our language help us to see things well? How does it not? Mm-hmm. What would happen if we inhabited another language? What could we see? What, what, what would we not, what would we might still not see? Yeah. Um, but that idea is so counter to the enlightenment idea that there's just this objective truth that's readily available to everybody, et cetera, et cetera. So I think for some for some Christians, what what they need to see is that historically, Christians have been talking about us, have been talking about human beings as limited, finite creatures that are perspectively bound. It's very similar to what you get with CRT. That's what some of the the standpoint epistemology is about. What's it like to see things from this perspective versus seeing things from that perspective? How can we all help one another see things rightly? And then my last point on this would be, even somebody like Plato, read his Republic, he's going to say, if you inhabit a certain perspective, when you're in the cave, you think that the firelight up against the wall is the real deal. You think that's real light. And then somebody drags you out and you get to the top of the cave and you're like, oh, my eyes are burning and oh my goodness, what's all this that I'm seeing? Mm. I stress that example because so many of the same people, they're going to say, no, 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 there isn't, there isn't, um, there isn't this perspectival nature of thinking are often the ones that are going to be championing things like classical Christian schools, um, you know, homeschool education, which is going to be connected to championing things like the, the Western canon and people like Plato. And there are times I'm like, y'all, if you just read these folks more carefully, they're yeah. saying similar things. That idea about the cave is very similar to a Gramscian idea about hegemony mm-hmm. and how once you get into a certain social location, you might not see a whole lot of what's going on. Mm. Yeah. So it doesn't challenge the gospel per se, it challenges an enlightenment view of knowledge. It challenges an epistemology. Yep. Yeah. Nathan, I the, the Enneagram 3 in me is kind of going berserk because I hear <laughs> all of this and I'm like, okay, what am I going to do? Like that that's yep. what happens in my heart, right? And and mm-hmm. what I hear you kind of saying is, you know, we hear from CS Lewis like read read older books and make sure that we're more grounded yep. and all that kind of stuff. I also hear you saying have conversations with people. Like really talk, engage in conversations whether it's with your spouse or your friend or your kids. Um mm-hmm. maybe read read history books that are not whitey white white books <laughs> you know like yes. that type of thing what else would you add for for our listeners who are kind of like okay my imagination has grown i'm learning i'm seeing yeah. i'm i'm growing but but now what great question so here i'm going to champion something that i do get from uh charles lawrence III, who's a crt or one of the founders he stresses being a people of what he calls the book and he says what i mean by that is you're constantly learning through reading, listening to podcasts, dialogue with people, which are also constantly trying to promote justice. Now, I would add as a Christian, justice and mercy as you're trying to be faithful to God. Mm-hmm. Because yes. you always see this, you, you see justice and mercy paired all the time throughout the Old New Testament. I think one of the problems that got, has gone on in some of the um, race-conscious discourse in the church is that mercy's dropped out, which is a big, big problem. Hmm. Um, and, and visions of, of justice are just too thin. More on that another time, perhaps. But I'd say, okay, so there needs to be the steady engagement of, of learning and acting, learning and acting, learning and acting, which for Christians, that should make so much sense because like, yep, I need to hear the word and then I need to be a doer of the word. Yeah. Similar thing to what, what Lawrence is getting at. But now I want to talk about doing. I think many evangelicals slash confessional folks 
they still think in a very individualistic mode. Even as they're hearing what we're saying now and they're thinking about broader social realities, some of the questions about, well, what can I do? There's a failure to recognize, for example, how limited any one person's action is going to be. Mm. Because we're talking about broader societal patterns and structures and power in places that are going to be very hard to dislodge. Mm -hmm. Yes. But also they want to say, okay, if we're not just thinking in a hyper-individualistic way, and we are going to say, how, how about we think better than that, but of course still giving due diligence to individuals, we need to talk about spheres of influence. <laughs> so here's what I mean. We need to ask, what are the sorts of things that I can be doing in terms of relationships with certain friends, certain family members, places where I work, mm -hmm. places of worship? So now notice I've gone from uh, smaller communities and, and, from, and like familial or friendship relationships to institutions I'm a part of workplace institution, um, a, a congregation or a parish that I'm a part of. And then we ask, okay, let's think about just the congregation and parishes. What are they connected to? What's the, what's the, the diocese, the presbytery? What's the, if it's, if it's congregationalist mode, okay, are, are we in any coalitions, for example, or any conventions? Okay. What are the histories and the patterns of relating there? If I'm, I'm thinking especially about Christians, then I'm also asking, okay, where do our ministers go for semin to, to get seminary training? Hmm. What teaching happens there? What are the hiring practices there? Who gets invited to talk at those places? How are they spending their money? Then I can ask, okay, let me zoom back out again. I'm living in Wheaton. What are the, what are the racist practices that exist at the township slash the city level? Am I involved in things like town hall meetings or am I not? Then I can ask questions like, okay, am I paying attention to zoning patterns and who's being encouraged to live here and who's not being encouraged to live here? Am I paying attention to school questions about curricula? Am, am I asking, like, what are we reading? What are the kids learning? Even if I'm in a place that says like, oh yeah, we're doing dual language programs. It's going to be Spanish and English. Okay, but is it a presentation of Spanish that goes like this? We don't really care too much about Latinos and Latinas, but what we do want is for you, oh white people, to be able to learn Spanish because, oh, the power that will come if you know another language and you can make so much money and it's going to help you to get into college, et cetera, et cetera. Now, that's not a Christian way of thinking about these things. Now, I know that not every public school system, for example, is going to endorse distinctly Christian ways of thinking about it, but I want to be stressing, no, no, we learn languages. Because we want to love our neighbors well. We want to exercise hospitality. We want to receive from them too. It's not just us going and giving. We know that they have good right, we have they have things that are good, right, true, and beautiful to give to us. And we want to be able to receive what they have to give. So we can ask such questions about even things like these, these dual language programs. And then I zoom out and I say, okay, what's happened at the state level? I'm in Illinois. <laughs> it's, it's a quagmire. All sorts of, of wonkiness going on. Um, but one of the things I did like, for example, and something that I can applaud. I could applaud my, my, my state government for doing is they, they kept stressing the need to wear masks as mm -hmm. a way of caring for neighbor, mm -hmm. caring for the most vulnerable. And I'm like, oh, yeah, no, that's right. Christians need to care about how something like COVID-19 is going to impact the, the elderly. We need to care about how um, medical supplies are being distributed. So I was really pleased to see that in Illinois, they, uh, several people made sure that those areas that are part of lower income, com that are lower income communities did have access pretty early on to vaccines. Like, okay, great. But then I'm also noticing, hold on a second. Now there are these places that through wet redlining practices are still not getting access to vaccines. How can we resist and remediate that? And then, you know, zooming out even further, we get 
the, the big federal government in the United States. And we can ask questions like, what are the ways in which the federal government is or is not resisting and remediating forms of, of, of white supremacy? So, for example, those, those nasty racist laws that we talked about in the Marshall Trilogy, they're still in the books. The economic exploitation and subordination of Puerto Rico is still there. Right? Last I knew, over 45% of Puerto Ricans on the island are in poverty. This is happening in real time. Now, not everybody, for example, is going to be called to promote race-conscious justice and mercy for mi gente en Boricua in the same way that perhaps I will be. But we'd also need to see what might not be helpful at all is sending missionaries down there. <laughs> and, 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 and like teams are going to come and, and, and quickly fix some houses and things like this. No, no, no. It gets, it gets far more complicated because if groups go and do that, sometimes what happens is – the townships slash the, the, the cities, et cetera, they're like, oh, well, we're expecting these other people are going to take care of those problems. So eh, we're not going to put in funds. We're not going to take care of these things. We're going to go do something else. So it all gets to be highly complicated when we're thinking about how broader social patterns of, of relating are up and running. But let me, let me summarize again then. That means we're constantly reading and thinking and learning about all these different spheres of influence. And then we're asking, okay, Lord, how can I be salt and light how can I receive and give in terms of my friendships, family, church, broader church denominations? Okay, town. Okay, state. Okay, broader government. And then last point is this. I think, especially in the United States, it is tremendously important for Christians to listen to the voices of the global church. Listen to the voices of the global church. So my students are routinely shocked when I, when I provide them primary sources that show how back in the 19th century, for example, Christians in places like Latin America, all throughout Latin America, were saying, watch out for the white colossus that's trying to gobble up places like Mexico, Cuba, Puerto Rico, etc. Like, oh my goodness, they knew about this? Mm-hmm. They did know about this. And they were often writing to, for example, the African Methodist Episcopal denomination, saying like, hey, how can we have modes of solidarity? Because we see, we see that you all are catching hell, we're catching hell, how do we work through this? And And, and places like um, El Salvador, for example, you had Roman Catholics who were consistently saying that the practices, the economic exploitation that the United States is bearing down on us is devastating the church here. It's devastating Christians and non-Christians here. So and they were saying that back in the 70s, they continue to say it now, but a lot of Christians in the United States just don't even listen to these voices. And if we're honest, this question about Marxism resurfaces here. Because the moment you start to say, but look, there are these Latinos and Latinas in places like El Salvador and Honduras, and they're talking about how they're catching hell because of these modes of exploitation and oppression, what happens? Well, that's that liberation theology. That's that stuff that's shot through with Marxism. They don't really know what they're talking about. They're just looking for handouts, et cetera, et cetera. And all these racist ideas and all these fear-mongering tactics that we see now being used against CRT, they come right back. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yes. Nathan, I we are uh, against the clock here, and I'm— um, overwhelmed with gratitude and thankfulness, yeah. which is the same thing. I'm overwhelmed with both all the words that all the words that describe both, being, both things that mean the same thing. All, all things that describe being appreciative of yeah. the amount of work and time you've given us to yes. help us navigate this. And so, yes. um, where I know you have a blog, and I know there's, uh, and I know you teach at Wheaton. So this is your chance to plug this. Uh, and tell yep. people to come learn from you at Wheaton, and also tell us about your blog. Yeah, so um, my my blog's at my 
my website. So it's first name, Nathan, last name, Cartagena, C-A-R-T-A-G-E-N-A dot com. And I'm going to get back to to writing blogs. It's been it's been a wild time because I'm trying to revamp one of my classes and it just yeah, just takes a lot of time. So I haven't haven't uh, been able to blog since about February, but I'm getting back to that soon. And then I'm on Twitter um, at Mestizo Meditations. And I tried to share images of primary text or quotations throughout the day. They're going to be relevant for, for people trying to, to think, uh, think well about how to live, uh, live life in a godly way. And then um, the last the last thing I, I, I want to make sure I stress is it's it's so important that we ask ourselves this question. How, as we're trying to understand different movements, they're going to have things we agree with and disagree with. For example, as much as I've learned from Charles Lawrence III, there are times where he does say things about certain views regarding sexuality. I'm like, nope, I disagree. And there are going to be times where he's like, well, if you disagree, I'm not sure how much collaboration we could have. It's like, okay, I understand that. But somebody like Crenshaw doesn't hold the same view. Ian Haney Lopez doesn't hold the same view. So there, there's all these differences, which has been a common theme. But I'm, I, I note those differences because I'm asking, how do I love my neighbors as I'm learning from them? How do I make sure I represent them justly in my effort to be salt and light, in my effort to treat them well? Mm-hmm. And I, I think that the church has so much repenting to do, especially about CRT, but not just CRT. Because rather than there being a robust effort to love our neighbors well, to understand them well, for example, to even invite critical race theorists to talk about critical race theory on their own terms, it doesn't happen. It's like, well, who's somebody else that, that says they understand CRT? And you give us the representation, and then off we go. I, I think there's going to be a need for some serious repenting across denominational lines because we have failed to love our CRT neighbors, whether they're Christians, like somebody like um, Amani Perry, or they're not. Hmm. Yeah. Nathan, thank you again. Bless thank you. Thank you. Thank you all. Yeah, great to have you. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the Gravity Leadership Podcast. Our show is produced by Ben Sternke, Matt Tebby, and Ben Hardman. Aaron Sternke does our mixing and mastering. You can check out his work at aaronsternke.com. If you find our podcast helpful, share it with your friends in person and on social media. And don't forget to rate and review us online as well as subscribe so you don't miss an episode. You can join our Gravity community for free at gravityleadership.com join. You'll get our latest content delivered straight to your inbox, as well as an email most Fridays with curated links to articles we found interesting or helpful. To join us, go to gravityleadership.com join. And hey, we'd love to hear from you. Ask a question, make a comment, send us an idea, a recommendation, recipe, whatever. You can email us at podcast at gravityleadership.com. Catch you next time.